Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Thanks for listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil McKay and I'm your host. This is season six. Don't forget, you can go back through the whole catalog and find all five seasons of 7 Million Bikes. Make sure you subscribe and turn on the notifications. Follow 7 Million Bikes on Facebook. Go on there and give it a like. We're also on Instagram. If you do enjoy this content, then please go on the link in the notes for patreon.com and you can become a member of a Vietnam podcast and you get some cool benefits like free tickets. You'll get early bonus content as well. If you just want to buy me a coffee, there's also a link in the show notes. You can send me a coffee as well. So thank you very much to the previous people that sent me coffees, they were very much enjoyed. So very, very much appreciated. Season six is sponsored by our good friends over at Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. If you are in Saigon, then make sure you go check them out. Tell them that 7 Million Bikes sent you. They got two locations now, one in D2 and one in District 1. If you've seen the show Riverdale on Netflix, you'll know exactly what Eddie's is like. It's a slice of home comfort, no matter where you're from in the world. Make sure you check out Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. So enjoy 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Welcome to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. You're here with Neil McKay, your host, as always. I'm excited for today's guest. He is the co-CEO and founder of the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. He's Australian, but we'll forgive him for that. And he has been in Vietnam since 2002. So I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Michael Brzozowski. How are you doing today, Michael? 
Hey, I'm great, Neil. Thanks. So you have been here for nearly 20 years. Coming up to it, yeah, next year, I'll, uh, I hope that uh, I can have a bit of a party, a bit of a celebration to, uh, to mark that. You should. So I've asked this question from a lot of previous guests, and you're one of the, the longest standing guests in terms of being in Vietnam for a long time. It must be like a different country now to where, where it was 20 years ago. It's hard to really think back to, to what it was like. Uh, but yeah, um, so much has changed. So much is still the same. Uh, but but uh, traveling around the country, there's no doubt, you know, there are you know, tall buildings everywhere. People are driving cars instead of bicycles. Uh, everything's a bit crazier and more hectic. Um, but there's still a lot of charm as well. Yeah, I mean, Hanoi and Saigon are quite different. So you're based in Hanoi, right? Mm. Viewers and listeners don't know that. What do you think are the main differences between Hanoi and Saigon? Well, you know, when, when I first came to Vietnam, I was in Saigon for the first six months. Uh, I was teaching at the National, at the Economics University, and then I was transferred uh, to, to the National University here in Hanoi. At the time, the difference between Hanoi and Saigon was in Saigon, people were wearing Hawaiian shirts, you know, floral shirts. Here in Hanoi, they were still wearing military uniforms. You know, you'd go around the streets and uh, and 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 people would still be wearing like the military hats and uh, green green shirts. Now that difference is kind of smooth smoothed over, but but Hanoi is still kind of like the the patriarch of the of the family. Um, but the, the young generation here now has a lot more freedom and, and, and freedom of expression and are learning how to use it. Whereas every time I'm in Saigon, I kind of feel like it's a bit more sophisticated that, that, that people know how to enjoy themselves and party. Uh, where in Hanoi, it's kind of like a rebellious teenager. So that, that's how I see the two cities. How would you compare that to cities in, a, in Australia? Wow, there's there's no comparison. Cities in in Australia are are quiet, conservative places. Uh, I, I kind of feel when I when I look at Australia versus Vietnam, uh, and, and maybe this applies to other countries as well. Those countries kind of feel like they've made it. They've they've been through poverty and and uh, disadvantage and so on long long ago, and and now they're they're wealthy and, and established. And, and, and so it's about the status quo. And here in Vietnam, especially in the cities, there's constant movement. You know, there's still that dynamism here. There, there's still somewhere to go. There's, there's, there are still new mountains to climb. So, you know, when I go back to Australia, like to Sydney, um, I, I, I love it at first. I love that things kind of work as you would expect and, and, and things are a bit more predictable. And after about two weeks, I'm completely bored. I want to get back to Vietnam. Yeah, there's definitely a, an unpredictability here, that's for sure. And one of the things we, we've kind of talked about and you, you touched on it there is we're from countries where everything's been built, everything's been created. So you go back and that predictability of the subway system or public transport or bridges, for example. Like I get so excited about watching a, a bridge get built here in, a, in Saigon and watching it 
come near to completion. And I had a, a Vietnamese friend when I, I posted a picture of it on Facebook, this was months ago, and she was like, and she asked a really interesting question in the comments. She said, have you ever seen a public work be created like that? And I was like, no. Like and where I'm from, everything was built. Yeah. So that's something that our parents and our grandparents went through. But but for us now, we see that city as, as a stable place. And, and here in Hanoi and certainly in Ho Chi Minh City, every time you turn around, no, there was there was actually one day last year when I, I went out of Hanoi in the morning and came back in the afternoon. When I came back, this major building by by a main road was just gone. And and there was this green metal fence around it. You know, that, that just doesn't happen, or at least not at the same pace and with the same regularity. Things things rise and, and fall overnight. It, it takes some getting used to, but I like it. I don't, is it, is it similar in Hanoi, in Saigon, your favorite restaurant or business can just be gone overnight. So did things change so quickly, not just like rise and fall, like just change? Yeah, and although here I find it's not quite so much as, as in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, you know, my favorite cafe, for example, Cafe 252, it, it is exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. The same menu uh, the same stools. I think at one point they changed the tables or they might have just put another layer of laminate on top. Everything is exactly the same. And, and there are different places around the city that have just always been there. But then you do have now, and especially with, uh, I guess, Westerners in certain areas where, you know, someone will come and, and they're from Cuba and they'll open a restaurant. Uh, and, and then a year later, that might be gone. You have that. But but then off on the side, you've just got all these other places. Always been there, always will be. It, it's impossible to imagine Hanoi without some of these places. There was a, a trend recently on one of the foodies groups here. People were posting, I guess they were going through old pictures and finding pictures of menus from restaurants from like 10, 15, 20 years ago. Some who are still in existence. Uh, and it's quite interesting looking at the prices and, and things like this. And this would have been when there was probably only a handful of places to eat, like Western-style restaurants, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's one thing that has definitely changed, the prices of things. Uh, you know, I used to go and get a bowl of pho for $5,000. If, if it was more than 5000 you know, come on, you know, you're charging the foreigner prices and get out of town. Um, wow. That's quite quite incredible. Uh, and you know, some some of us can afford these price rises. Some of us not so much. So what? So tell me then, what was a uh, Vietnam like then in terms of things like like that twenty years ago? The food, the price, the differences, the infrastructure. Like, uh, I'm assuming you couldn't speak the language then. I, can you speak the language now? Badly, I I can get by, and you know, at, at the Blue Dragon Center, for example, I meet kids and 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 I can chat with them. Uh, I can go to the cafe and have a little bit of a conversation. Uh, anything a bit more um, sensitive, uh, as it, you know, in my work, there's a lot of working with government officials or making speeches. I, I just don't even bother. I, I go straight to a translator. And I really, really wish that I'd invested in language training when I first arrived. Now, I, you know, I, I don't think I could find the time in the day to, to really take it on. But I, I should have done when I first got here. 
Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I think the same. But were you the similar to me when we came to Vietnam? And for anyone who listens every episode of the podcast, they'll know this by now. My wife and I came for six weeks, and we're now in our sixth year of being in Vietnam. So we never planned to be here for this long. So while I'm making excuses, that was partly why I didn't take the time to learn the language because I just didn't think I would ever need it. And then I realized how difficult it was, and it was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I did plan to stay here, uh, although I actually planned to live in Saigon. Uh, so, so maybe I, I should be thankful that I didn't learn with the Saigon accent because <laughs> that would be the same as not being able to speak Vietnamese at all, I think, in, uh, in Hanoi um, in terms of making myself understood. Uh, but, yeah, at the start, I was lazy. And my excuse, by the way, was always that Vietnamese people didn't want me to speak my bad Vietnamese to them. They wanted me to speak English. You know, that's one thing. I mean, it's a stereotype, but but it holds so true that that Vietnamese people generally are intellectually curious. You know, they want to learn new things. They want to know something new. And and they want to learn languages. Um, You know, this Cafe 252 that I was telling you about, they they speak French, uh, I think, I think the grandfather spoke Russian and, of course, they speak English, uh, you know. So so people didn't necessarily want me practising my Vietnamese on them. They wanted to practise their English on me. Yeah, I had the exact same experience. And still to this day, you know, trying uh, even just the tiniest little bit of English, uh, sorry, Vietnamese. And even I, I still make a joke about it. How many times do you go into a convenience store and you say, Xin chào, and then they say, hello. That's right. You know, so even when you try and speak Vietnamese sometimes, yeah, they they would, because they want to practice their English, then they'll try and speak back to you in English. And then the other thing that I've noticed, and I don't know about you and your position have you noticed, but over the five years here, the levels of English have just increased to the point where it makes you even lazier because, like, I, like, I don't, I can live my life almost perfectly. And then the fact that websites are set up in, bilingual ATMs are bilingual like there's just all those barriers that if you were living in a country that didn't have any of those things you'd be like oh okay I've got to learn the language but here it's like oh okay right so I it's all excuses and I know I should learn it but I was I was in Australia once with one of my staff a, a Vietnamese man and uh and at some point another Vietnamese person rang him we were, we were on a train and so he answered the phone in Vietnamese and someone on the train started abusing him for speaking another language, uh, and 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 this this woman was 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 kind of shouting, you know, this is Australian, you should be speaking Australian, which first of all was kind of a funny thing for him to be saying, but um, you know, here in Vietnam, it's it is not always perfect with with language, and and sometimes the translation is terrible, but there's a real effort, and you know, you, you wouldn't see that. In, in a lot of Western countries, that, that effort to be inclusive of, of foreign languages that are, that are being spoken, where in a lot of ways we're spoiled as, as expats in, uh, in Vietnam. Oh, uh, absolutely spoiled yeah, in so many ways. Have you ever been to central Vietnam with uh, a Vietnamese, like either a northern or a southern Vietnamese speaker? Yeah, we, we have some work in Hue. And over time, we've also done quite a bit in Nghệ An and, and sometimes some individual cases in places like Quang Tri. 
And that's quite funny when they need translators to, to talk to each other. I have some staff as well who, who can switch in and out. So we have some staff in Hanoi who are from those north central provinces. And when they're here in Hanoi, they speak like a Hanoian. But I've accompanied them back to their family home. And all of a sudden, it's like, what language is this now? I didn't know you could speak this. Yeah, and also, like, we, we feel guilty as foreigners. Uh, but even other people, a lot of people, if they don't live in Vietnam or they've not been here for very long, won't realize that they're almost very separate languages, almost in terms of being so different. So I was in um, Da Nang recently with uh, my friend Kim, and it was so funny because we normally, when we're with her, we normally rely, rely on her to order food or check that things are right. And she was trying to speak to the waitress. And she's like, I have no idea what she just said. It reminds me also of a time a friend of mine from Hoi An came to Hanoi and was complaining about how everyone was overcharging him and, and trying to rip him off and giving him a bum steer because he was not a local. And, you know, as, as foreigners, we think that sometimes we're overcharged or, 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 you know, we're taken for a ride because we're foreigners. But actually Vietnamese people have the same experience when they travel because their accent gives them away. It's another one of those nuances that, that you don't know when you first come here. Absolutely. I forgot about that. Yeah, I've been told that by several friends like that from Saigon. They're like, oh, no, yeah, if we go to, like, where or we go to Hanoi, they'll charge us, like, a different price. They'll hear the accent. They're like, it's so... And yeah, I mean, Vietnamese people can be... Uh, I'm not self-hating. What's the word? Vietnamese people can be, like, any culture, right? Like, it's Sydney, Melbourne. It's, like... Glasgow, Edinburgh, London, Manchester. No city, no country is a, a monoculture. We think of it as being England or as Australia, but even within that. And then you break it down into like suburbs, you know, and it gets, it's just one of these things that uh, we can oversimplify things, right? But it's all, it's quite funny though. The longer you live somewhere, then you start to learn those intricacies because you do, like I lived in America and then people think of it as American as one accent. And then I lived in Rhode Island. Rhode Island's got like a really distinct accent, which is slightly different to Boston, but similar. But then even in with Rhode Island, you've got like Cranston, which is like a certain area of Rhode Island that has a specific accent. <laughs> it just gets like crazy. Yeah, that's right. And and your, your point about Vietnam is, uh, you know, there, there are all these different cultures. And I mean, there are also lots of different languages spoken here that are Vietnamese, but are but are not king language. Um, when you when I first arrived in Vietnam, that that was not my understanding of the place. I really saw it as this one. Everything's you know going to be the same from one end to the other. So uh, so living here and learning is is a real awakening over time. I just remember one last story on this topic. I remember I was doing some work with Saigon Children's Charity, and we were down in the Mekong Delta. And one of their staff members was from either central or, or the north, but north of, of Saigon. Uh, and she needed the rest of the staff to translate, to talk to the, the children that they were supporting down in the Mekong Delta because they just couldn't, she couldn't understand them. They couldn't understand her. And they were telling me like, it's not just the accent. They have like different words for, sorry. They have different words for pig and things like this. She's like, I'm Vietnamese and I couldn't even speak to these students. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The different words for pig. I've made some mistakes in that regard. But 
<laughs> there you go. Now, so tell us then, what brought you to Vietnam then? 2002, you left Sydney. Tell us, your, what, what did you do in Australia before you came to Vietnam? It, it's, uh, it's almost like destiny, as far as you can believe in destiny. I, so I was born in Sydney. And, and then when I was about 12, my family moved 600 kilometres out of, out of the city to a really remote area. And I was living, living on this little farm. Um, and, and for my final two, two years of high school, I had a 60-kilometre drive each way to get to school and then to get home. So, you know, really remote. And into this remoteness, one day appeared a family of Vietnamese refugees. They had, they had left by boat, ended up in Malaysia. And from Malaysia went to Inverell in northwest New South Wales. And, you know, they'd been through language training and whatnot. But, I mean, they were shocked, absolute culture shock. Um, and, and it was a, re a really classic, uh, you know, Australian town, mostly white people. I, I was considered foreign because of my surname. Um, you know, and I, and I didn't speak any other language other than English. And, and so I kind of thought, why don't I help out? And, and so I got tutoring these, um, these students and, and helping with their English and learning their story, which was, in, it was just incredible to me. They'd been attacked by pirates. They'd, they'd lived in, in camps in Malaysia. And, and I had no idea. I, I was, I mean, I was living in poverty and hardship. But listening to what they were going through, I felt, wow, I'm, I'm sheltered. And, and so, you know, that sparked an interest in Vietnam. And I, partly because of that, I became an ESL teacher. So I, I went off back to Sydney and uh, went to university, became an English and ESL teacher and ended up in southwestern Sydney that has a very large Vietnamese population. And, and so there I was teaching uh, mostly the children of Vietnamese immigrants to, to Australia. So they were second generation. But, you know, they, they spoke Vietnamese at home and then they came to school and English was their second language, even though they'd been born there. And, and again, I was fascinated by these students. And so at, at one point I'd, I'd saved up enough money and I'd, I'd never been overseas before. So I thought, well, where do I want to go? I want to, I want to go to Vietnam. I want to see where these people are from. Um, I mean, to my mind, they were hardworking and studious. They were deeply loyal. Um, you know, I was a new teacher and I, and I would have these instances where, you know, another student would be giving me a rough time out walking across the playground or whatever, and, and one of my Vietnamese students would, would kind of call out, you know, or, or come up and just walk alongside me. Just stuff like that, that, that people were, that the students were so appreciative of having a teacher who was dedicated to helping them. So I had to come to Vietnam. And, and I came and I, I had a bit of a trip through Thailand and then into Vietnam, and, and I was just blown away. I was only in the Delta, uh, especially around uh, Chao Doc, I, I remember in particular, and, and, you know, that border area with Cambodia. And I was only there for a few days, but I was hooked. I, I just couldn't wait to get back. And so the next time I came, next time I had another break, another holiday, straight back to Vietnam. And, and then again and again, and I finally, you know, I've got to live there. 
And so, yeah, in 2002, I just, I, well, I, I quit my job um, the year earlier and uh, got rid of all my stuff and just came. It was, it was just as simple as that. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was whatever it was, I was going to do it in Vietnam. That's awesome. You're, you're one of the few people I've ever spoke to that came to Vietnam with a purpose. Uh, and I don't mean to put down people. No, that's probably not true. I don't want to. There's plenty of people I've spoken to, but maybe in my circle with a lot of expats, not many people came to Vietnam with that kind of determination and uh, the reason to be here. Like a lot of people like myself came for a short time and then and then fell in love and decided to stay. So you came in 2002. What happened next? Well, I, um, of course, I realized I came without any plan, without, without knowing what I was going to do. And it was kind of like being retired for a while. I, uh, I was happy just to drift around. I, uh, I just found some cheap accommodation. And um, when I wasn't in Saigon, I'd, I'd head up the coast. Uh, I'd go back down into the Mekong Delta. So I was really just drifting for a, for a while and, and just really enjoying um, not having anything much to do. I guess like, like being on holiday but also knowing that I would have to find a job or something eventually, but I was in no hurry. Um, and then, yeah, eventually I, I met someone who said, Hey, look, we've got a, got a position coming up at, at this university and, and why not, you know? So I, I started working and, and uh, became a, a teacher in an economics university, not what I'd really envisioned, but then I, I had no plan anyway. So why not? So what was life like then in terms of uh, comfortableness? Is that a word, comfortableness? Uh, like air con, food, uh, I don't know. Like I always hear people complain about, not always, but often about food poisoning. I've never had a problem with food poisoning here. Maybe that's just lucky, but like we see the street food. It doesn't exactly look clean, but it, I've never had a problem. But what was it like 20 years ago? Was it different? Like right now, I don't think Vietnam is different to 20 years ago. We have all the mod cons. We can go get Mexican food, Indian, Italian, there's craft beer, there's air con. 20 years ago, what was it like? Yeah, there, there wasn't all of those options and and there wasn't as much comfort. It, I, I mean, I really, I can't complain, but uh, I, I did get a fair bit of food poisoning. <laughs> Probably for a year and a half, I would say. Every, every <laughs> Non-stop. Month. Well, every every month I would have I would have a week of being unwell. Um, wow. It, it That's really so hit tough. Me. That's so tough. And I don't think it was just food poisoning. I think a lot of it was acclimatizing to 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 really being here full full time. And uh, and you know, I wasn't living sort of in the expat kind of areas. Uh, I, I was hanging out in, in Vietnamese places, uh, so a bit more of a local, and my body just wasn't used to it. Um, you know, then eventually it switched, by the way, and then when I went back to Australia, I'd get sick. So it was like my body was um, acclimatizing to Vietnamese germs, and then when I went back to Australia, Australian germs were, were alien to me. So there was a bit of adjusting to do, um, but it was, it was kind of a simple life. Uh, things were a lot simpler for me then, and and you know I really would. I just on a Friday afternoon, I'd fly up or get a get a train up to Nha Trang, and that was before all of the high rises. Nha Trang was really undeveloped. Oh, I bet it was amazing. Uh, or I'd I'd go to Hoi An, and those were the days when in Hoi An there there was so few people and and so little 
to do there that at 9 p.m. at night, the streetlights would automatically turn off because everyone was already home. So, you know, it was, it was a much quieter place. Uh, and, and I used to enjoy, uh, and in those places, I'd, I'd form friendships with, with some people. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of going around as a, uh, like visiting tourist sites or I, I wasn't so interested in studying, you know, the historical architecture. It was the people. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to go and, and, and meet a family and, and get to know them. Uh, and, and, you know, some of those families, even now, I'm, I'm still good friends with years later. That's amazing. There's part of me that's so jealous. Um, there's a question I asked on the last season of the podcast. We don't ask it this season was, would you rather live in Vietnam now or 20 years ago? And because there's part of me that like, that just sounds so amazing. And there's this romanticized version of it being sleepier and being nicer and there's less tourists. But at the same time, there's less people that speak English. You get sicker more often. You don't have all the mod cons that you have now. So it's like, for me, I'm like a toss up. Like, yeah, it sounds beautiful and it sounds so romantic. But like, would I have enjoyed it or would I have been like, you know, because I I'm I never want to go to India. Like my wife would love to go to India. And I, I know people that want like love India. I, and I'm probably like in the wrong, but I just have no desire to go. And the biggest reason is because I don't know anyone who's gone to India and not become violently sick for a, either a portion of the trip. But the worst one was I had a friend who got sick on the way home. So he was on the plane, as you can imagine, had to use the bathroom. And I just can't think of anything worse than the plane taking off. You can't leave your seat and you're about to explode. That's like my worst nightmare. So that's one of the one of the reasons why I don't want to go to India. And so you, what you just described there sounds so beautiful and romantic. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could have gone to Hoi An back then. I wish I could have done this. But then part of me is like, well, there's, there's a downside as well, right? And and I think you know if I if I'm honest, I I probably would go back to that to that period because for me also personally it was a simpler time. But you know for Vietnamese people, I don't think many would say I'd like to go back 20 years. You know, there's been so much development, um, yes. so much progress. People are generally have so much more money and more comfort now. So. You know, it, it is interesting that you can have those very different views of the romantic good old days. Yeah, and I need to remember that. That's a really good point. I've just get, come across as a total wanky expat who's like, oh, it'd be so nice to go back in 20 years. But like it was so much, I'm completely don't, I've been so selfish in that comment not to think that, yeah, for Vietnamese people, there was still huge rates of poverty. Obviously, there still is now, but I mean, now Vietnam is... Is a, a middle income, is that what they describe it as? A middle income, middle is that what it's called? Middle, right. middle income, right? Um, obviously, I live in Saigon and I see the wealth. I see the poverty as well, but that's, I forgot about that, yeah, to romanticize about it 20 years ago, but you're, the, my romantic notion is, oh, people live in poverty and it's so poor. Like, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a family, well, there's actually a restaurant in, in Hoi An along the river called the Blue Dragon Restaurant. Now, oh, it's no not way. our restaurant, but it's it was started by a family. Um, and the, the father of this family is, is a man named Nam. When I met Nam, the house, and, and it's in the same spot, but it was a different house. The house actually ended up being crushed by a collapsing neighbor's house. 
but it was this kind of dark, um, it was just all brick front with, with these two heavy timber doors. Uh, you know, there was no light in there, there were no, no windows um, and a very low asbestos roof. And, and Nam used to sell ceramics um, out the front of his house. So when I was here, especially on holidays, I got, you know, I got to know Nam. I, I became part of his family. And I would sell ceramics for Nam. I would, I would sit there. I loved it, just watching the river go by. But, you know, a whole day, in a whole day, sometimes he'd make a dollar. And, and sometimes less than that, you know. And, and the whole family, generations, were living in that house. Now, I, the, the house got destroyed and, and the government rebuilt it because technically it's government property and they made it into something nicer. And then I gave Nam a loan to, to start a restaurant and he committed that he would give some of that money every month to Blue Dragon. Now, now his family, you know, they have made, you know, through, through the COVID period, they've, they've had a lot of difficulty, but, but they're no longer in this poverty of $1 a day. Their, their kids have gone on to university and, and, you know, one of them works in IT in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, one works in, ho in hotel management in Da Nang. You know, 20 years ago, their life was so hard. And yet, you know, I still dream of that lovely sitting out the front of their house, selling ceramics to, to tourists and watching the river go by. So for me, what, what is a beautiful, happy memory for them is something that they're just glad that they escaped. Mm. That's a really nice point. And it makes me feel better because <laughs> I thought I was being a total wanky expat, which I was. But it's a really interesting point. And I don't think I've thought about that enough recently that uh, I think everyone's guilty of it. Well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people are guilty of it that we can complain about development and whatnot, but we forget about what that means to people's lives, you know? That's, that's exactly right. And development absolutely has its downfalls. Uh, often, often it's responsible for terrible things, but it also brings millions of people out of poverty. So, so in the end, uh, Vietnam has to develop. It's a good thing that it's been developing and, uh, and I'm sure it'll keep on developing for mm. a long time. One of the things that I, I've, I get annoyed at myself about is when I see some development, maybe like along a waterway or something like that, I get excited because I know it's going to clean up the waterway. So I'm like, yeah, I know development is probably bad for the environment, but like right now this waterway is black and it's disgusting and it's dirty. But if this gets developed, it will become nicer. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, and this is where Vietnam sometimes gets it right, sometimes doesn't get it right. When, when, when it comes to development, countries have that option of doing it really, really well. Um, and, and Singapore, I think, is an example of a country that, you know, when they do something, they, they do it over the top well. In Vietnam, a little bit too often, things as they're developed, you realise, ah, this is, this is not going to be great, maybe for the environment, maybe for society. Um, but but it's, it's such an opportunity that, that a country has. And I do think now that as time goes by, when new development happens, especially in... Uh, in certain remote rural areas, I see evidence that now people are looking at other areas where development didn't go so well. 
and and are learning lessons from that. Um, I see a lot more emphasis on environmental protection uh, and and on community development and and on supporting women. You know, there are there are community initiatives in say in Dnbian province, which is right up on that northwest corner with China, where uh, so there's it's a kind of a government and private enterprise collaboration to get one good business going in each commune. And, and, and so you can find these products in, in supermarkets and, they, and they're good products. And, and you know that it's local people who are involved. It, it, and when it is local people, of course, they're also gonna be more concerned about their immediate environment. They don't wanna trash right where they live. So, you know, there are these, these encouraging signs and, and I like to look for these examples of things going well so that they can be highlighted and, and shared uh, so that others can copy them. And it's still, it's such a new developing country. You know, we're talking 20, 30 years. Of course, they're going to have le- learning, a learning curve. And I, when I, I compare it often to Australia or, or Scotland or wherever, like we, we went through the same. We were no better. I mean, I, I lived in Melbourne before... Uh, well, back in the day, I lived in Melbourne before New Zealand, and I remember you know what Melbourne's like along the water. It's beautiful. There's a big, expensive casino that created a lot of that beauty, which I'm not, I'm not a big fan of gambling, but okay. So you've got this beautiful casino, beautiful waterway, bars, restaurants, and it's just beautiful. And there's a park. But I read, you know, back hundred years ago, that water was black. There was coal-fired power plants. There was soot in the air. People were getting the black lung in the middle of the CBD, whereas now the CBD is all cafes and restaurants and coffee shops and parks. And it's like, it wasn't built like that. You know, even Australia, Melbourne, every other country, New York would have been the same. I mean, half of New York's built on landfill, is it not? Like Manhattan Island has been expanded on landfill. So Sometimes, and I'm guilty of it as well, and a lot of people can be guilty of, of being uh, accusatory of, of not doing things correctly or it's been done wrong. But at the end of the day, <laughs> just like we mentioned in the beginning, we were lucky enough to be born at a time in a place where all of that had already been done. Whereas now we're in Vietnam, where that's all happening in front of our eyes. And that, that, that's why Vietnam is such an exciting place. Yeah. And, and where you do have to take that term view that yeah sometimes there are things that happen that are really annoying or that could be done a lot better than than it has been done but you know that they're going to get there in the end in in another 20 years i have no idea what this place will look like i can't even imagine but i know it'll be bigger yeah Uh, hopefully the environment will be will be a bit better protected um it is it's going to keep on moving no and i try and be optimistic on most fronts and so it can be despairing when you see the waterways and, you know, maybe we're too late in the world. So maybe I have no reason to be optimistic and maybe it's too late. And we've already filled the oceans with plastic and we've filled the air with carbon and maybe it's just too late. But in terms of Vietnam, I, I think the same thing. If you look at the bigger picture, I think in 10, 20 years time, the waterways will be cleaner because that's just the pattern we've seen in our home countries is those things will be cleaned. The air will become cleaner. The development will become lesser. The pollution will become lesser as the construction slows down. I mean, you look at places like Seoul and Korea. Or, I mean, I've never been to uh, Hong Kong or Tokyo, but those places, they used to be like a swampland, right? And now they are massive, massive sky rises. So they've been through that as well, right? And yeah, Vietnam's going to go through those 
those pain, growing pains as well. Season six is sponsored by our good friends over at Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. If you are in Saigon, then make sure you go check them out. Tell them that 7 million bikes sent you. They got two locations now, one in D2 and one in District 1. If you've seen the show Riverdale on Netflix, you'll know exactly what Eddie's is like. It's a slice of home comfort, no matter where you're from in the world. Make sure you check out Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. So let's fast forward a bit then. So you came to um, Saigon, sorry, Saigon, yeah, Saigon 2002, into Vietnam. So let's fast forward. So Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. So uh, for anyone who, well, we haven't really said in the beginning, we used to do work together in my previous job with the ILA Community Network. We were big supporters of Blue Dragons Children's Foundation. I am a personal supporter of Blue Dragons as well. But I've just realized I think my donation has lapsed because there was something wrong with my card. So I need to set that up because I used to have a, a monthly donation set up and I think something went wrong with that. But um, I, I'm very passionate about what you guys do. Uh, it's hard not to get passionate about what you do. Um, and I'm excited because we had Damien Roberts on on the last season from Saigon Children's Charity. And part of the reason of this podcast is to talk about people's stories and background. And we got, I got, I'm so passionate about these causes that we ended up just talking about Saigon Children's Charity for the whole episode. And we didn't learn anything about Damien at all. But if you're listening, Damien, you're not that interesting anyway. So we didn't, we didn't really lose anything on that one. But um, so, Michael, I'm glad on this occasion we've got to talk about your background uh, and how you got to Vietnam. But tell us, uh, tell us about the story of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. How did it start? What do you do? Um, tell us more. Well, I was in Saigon for six months. Um, I loved it there, just loved it. And, uh, but but I, was, I had the easiest job in the world. I, I was teaching English to a group of students, and English was only one of their subjects. Uh, and there was only 12 students. So, like, I had three classes a week with 12 students. I, I, was, I was getting bored, right? But I, ha- I was on easy street. The university realized it and they, they said, look, we've got a sister center in Hanoi that has 80 students and they don't have an English teacher. So I got transferred. And, and honestly, when I got here, I didn't like Hanoi at all. I'd never been here before. I'd never traveled that far north. And it was a real culture shock for me. Like I said, people wearing military uniform. Um, very, very conservative. And, and so I thought, okay, I'll, I'm committed. I, I was kind of a volunteer um, in, in this role. I was getting paid, but it was a voluntary basis. I said, okay, I'll stay here for a few months and then I'll get back to Ho Chi Minh City. And while I was here, I, because I had that mindset, I'm going to be here just a short time, I didn't do the things you normally do when you move to a new city, like, you know, rent a house and, and look to make friends because I was only going to be there for a few months. So I was just staying in a hotel in the old quarter. And so every single day when I went out, there would be kids shining shoes or selling something. There'd be the women uh, with the baskets over their shoulders. And, and I would get to know some of these people. Um, you know, most people stay in a hotel for a couple of days and move on, right? And I was there for weeks and weeks, and then they turned into months. So people started to get to know me. After work on the weekend, I'd be sitting, you know, having a coffee by the side of the street, and, and someone would come along and offer me a shoe shine, And I'd say, no, sit down, I'll buy you a Cinco. And, 
and and teach you some English. And and you know the next day they'd come back with their friends and 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 this thing started to build. Uh, and of course I'd go into university the next day and I and I'd tell my class these stories. And some of the students now this was a master's level course in development economics. So some of the students would come and say, hey, this is really interesting. Can we volunteer with you? So all of a sudden, now there are volunteers. Now, you know, so I eventually rented a house and uh, and I started running classes out of the top, top floor of my house. Uh, now, my, my landlady just absolutely hated this. Every Sunday afternoon, this group of kids would come along and it, it turned into about 14 kids. And, you know, they'd have their shoeshine boxes. They'd be dirty. Sometimes they'd come covered in blood. You know, they'd been in a fight or something. She was mortified that, you know, she thought renting her house to a foreigner meant everything was going to be dignified. And, and here he was running a class for, for street kids. But my university students would be there and, and we'd go off for a meal afterwards. And, you know, we got to know these kids and, and eventually, like, we, we couldn't fit anymore in that classroom. So someone said, well, why don't, we, why don't we take it to the field? Why don't we rent a football field? And, and we'll play football, and then we'll have a healthy meal, and, and then we'll teach English after that. And, and so we started doing that. The, um, the English lessons after football only ever lasted once. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out they weren't interested in that once, once they could play football. But we still play football. You know, nearly 20 years later, we, we still play that, that game of football every Sunday. In fact, now it's through the week as well on on different nights of the week. Um, but, you know, that was how it started. It was just a case of, look, here are these kids. They're hungry to learn. And, and when I looked back on my own experience as a child, you know, living on that farm, when, when we moved there, um, we didn't have, there was no house or anything there. We lived in, in caravans, what, you know, what American people call trailers on, on this land. There wasn't even electricity or running water. We, we were poor. And, and, and then here I am with these kids, and I realised if I had been born here in Vietnam, this would be me. Uh, and, and so for me, it was just the most natural thing in the world. But once it started, it was just this snowball. More volunteers came to, and said, look, let me help. And, uh, and, and more kids were coming. And, and they didn't just need English, you know. They, they actually, they needed to go back to school, back to their families. They needed a house, somewhere to stay. And, and so once we made that decision, there was just no stopping it. Uh, and we did go through a process of saying, well, what do we do? I, I wanted to go back to Saigon. So, so actually the first thing I did, I was contacting other NGOs, uh, some here in Hanoi, some in Saigon. Uh, and, and I was saying to them, look, there are all these kids here in Hanoi and there's really no one to look out for them. So Koto was here, of course, but, but Koto, you know, has an intake of up to 30 people and you've got to be a certain age. You've got to pass certain tests to, to get in. So it, it's a great program, but just not for everyone. And we were meeting kids who were like 13, 14. Um, some kids had never been to school. Uh, and some, you know, there was no way they were going to to join a, a training course or or, or study 
um, go back to school and do anything like that. So there was really just nothing for them. And, and you know, among us, um, me and all of the other volunteers, we had this discussion, what do we do? So we reached out to see, can anyone else come and help? Um, and, and no one really could. Now, by the way, I'm in that position now where I get those calls where people say, hey, I'm in this town or this city and you should come here, right, because there are, there's a problem here. But what I realised when I was in that situation was I was the one concerned about the problem. I was the one who knew the kids and wanted to help. Why was I ringing other people saying, hey, you know, I'm worried about this problem, so I'd like you to fix it? No, I was the one who could fix it. It was a really hard lesson. Wow. But once, once we made that decision, there was, there was no turning back. That's that's so incredible because, you know, I try myself to be a, a solution-focused person on small matters and big. But that's, yeah, like next level realization of being like, like this is on me. Like if, I, if I've identified this as a problem, then I need to do it. Was that scary? Sometimes. It was scary because we had no idea what, what we were going to do. Uh, I mean, none of us. That in the end, there were a couple of main people. There was me and, and another guy named Chung. Now, Chung lives in the US now. He runs a, uh, a tr- he has a translation company there, uh, and, and he's the president of Blue Dragon USA. And there was, you know, there was a, a Spanish guy named Gonzalo and some other Vietnamese volunteers. Um, none of us had done anything like this. And, and we found that, by the way, as we went out looking for support, everyone kind of fell into these two camps. One group would look at us and say, you have no idea what you're doing. You know, there's no way we're going to support this. And other people would look at it. And by the way, especially American people would, would say, hey, that's a great idea. Let me help you. <laughs> Once we had a bit of a track record, then others would start to come on board. But, you know, there were some who were attracted by the, by the vision and some who, who were concerned that, that we just had no track record at all. And, and so they were scary days where, you know, people would say to us, you're going to fail. Um, you shouldn't be doing this. There were people who would say to us, these kids, they don't want help. You know, they just want some extra money and, and they're going to they're then run off with that. And, and sometimes they were right, you know, and, and there were these times when we thought, what have we what have we done have we have we screwed this up completely were were the naysayers right they were the scariest times when we thought maybe we shouldn't have done this who who were the naysayers was it like local people government officials people back home who were the people that were doubting this often they were um people in, in other NGOs but i really want to be careful to say not all NGOs because we got some really good advice and support from some, but also our biggest critics were established NGOs um, or, or people sometimes in embassies or, or in development who kind of had a view of, you you know, you need the right qualifications um, you, you, and, and you don't tick all the boxes, you, you're not qualified. Now, I, I, I also want to say that when I meet somebody who, who comes along saying, hey, I want to do this, 
I also want to say to make sure you know that you do know what you're doing. I, I don't mean to say that any anyone can do this. This is for anyone. It's as easy as can be. Um, but there were so many people who wouldn't give us a chance, uh, and who who willed us to to fail. So now, by the way, I am often approached, and often like every couple of months, I get an email from someone who says I'm starting a project. Um, I'm interested in starting an organization. Would you talk to me? And I will always say yes. And I'll share basically anything except, um, you know, anything that's confidential uh, about our experience, about uh, what, what I think they, they might want to consider. And I'm always careful to not impose my will, but, but to share really openly. I, I had a call just recently from, from somebody wanting to start a street kids project in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, and, and I made sure that, that, our, that the, the guy who leads our street kids work here, who, who himself was a street kid, who I met in 2003, that he was on the call as well. Um, so, so that experience really, it, it made me think, if only people had helped me, so I'm gonna help others. So there's a, there was a, a positive outcome to that hard lesson in the early days. Was there ever a point where you thought about giving up? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and not only in the early days. Um, but yesterday, you're like, I was, I was over it. <laughs> I, I think the times, the hardest times have been when we've confronted problems that we thought we could not succeed in. Um, and, and going back about seven or eight years, here in Hanoi, there was this wave of, of people abusing street boys, sexually abusing street boys. And at the time, Vietnamese law didn't actually have a provision in it that a male could be the victim of, of sexual abuse. It was just in the way the law was written. It didn't define what sexual activity is and therefore relied on sort of like a, a common definition that it's something that happens between a man and a woman. Therefore, males could not be the victim of, of sexual abuse. And, and we knew kids who were being sexually abused. And, and, you know, some of these predators would even try to target kids who they knew we were in touch with or we were working with almost as a way, and it was especially some foreign guys, as a way of, of showing us that they were untouchable and they would tell the kids that, don't worry about Blue Dragon, don't worry about Michael, no one can stop me. There was also a bit of meth involved in this. And, and that was a point where I wondered, if I can't get through this, you know, if, if we can't solve this, then what's the point of, of us being here? Really dark days. And we did eventually find a way. It took years. It took years, and, and it was a time that we achieved maybe more than we've ever achieved, both, you know, on the individual level and at a systemic level, because that law changed. We got so many kids out of that trade where they were, they were being handed around for money. Um, but, you know, I do not look back on those as the good old days, that's for sure. Possibly the worst time of my life. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but... Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm a, 
I'm a comedian. I'm normally all about fun and entertainment, and I try and keep this podcast fun and entertaining as well. But look, let's just talk about this for a second because every country has their dark side, right? And, and we can get into the Vietnam's amazing and we love it. It's so beautiful and the food's so good. But there is a dark side to it. And again, it's not bashing Vietnam. It's every country has that. Um, I was really shocked. I, I saw the movie Noble, which have you seen that, which is about Christina Noble's journey, which... Uh, no, I, ha I haven't seen it. I have read her books. So okay. I think I know the story. You know the yeah. story. Yeah. And so just to not, again, not going into too much detail, but that comes across again in Christina Noble's story about uh, sexual abuse of, of minors, foreign guys coming over here. And we know that's quite a, a common trope with like Cambodia or Thailand, like sex pets and things like that. I don't think Vietnam has a, the same reputation or maybe as internationally well known as a, as a destination for that, which is maybe, I don't know, I may be speaking out of turn and you can correct me. Maybe that's a problem because people just think of Thailand and Cambodia with these things and don't think of Vietnam. So touch on that, sorry to get to my point. And then explain to, to the listeners in more detail, what does Blue Dragon do to solve that? Because this is where, when I started to learn about what you guys do, and every time I see one of your Facebook posts, I mean, I've literally read some of your Facebook posts and cried, like literally with, with tears of happiness and sadness, happiness that the, the work that you have done to, to do what you do. So I'll, let, I'll, leave, I'll turn it over to you and you can explain what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I really do think actually that Vietnam dodged a bullet in in reforming that law on, on, on abuse of children um, because it was getting to that point that, that we knew that there were people coming here because they thought they could get away with it. Um, it wasn't as well known as, you know, other, other places have been, but there were people. In fact, there were, there were people from Saigon coming to Hanoi, including, uh, including Vietnamese people, um, because there were spots around the city where, where this was happening out in the open like lit, literally in the open, um, at, in parks at night. Um, and, and, and people also flying in from other countries. But, and, and this is the positive thing. This is the inspiring thing. At first, you know, we were reporting this to the police and we were, we were almost angry. Like, why don't they fix this? Come on, why don't they just go and arrest these people? Because even we didn't understand that the law didn't allow, didn't allow them to. But what we actually found was that these police and these authorities, they wanted to deal with it. And, and once we could just get them together and, and, and let them communicate with each other about, you know, their struggle against this crime, then, I mean, it was, again, it was like a, a rolling ball. It, it couldn't be stopped. And, and, and it was within a couple of years, and which, which is a pretty quick time for a law revision to take place. And, 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 and so this new law came into effect and they started implementing. People went to prison. And, and just straight away, like that just, I mean, this, this crime is still going on and there are other places around Hanoi now where, where this is a problem. Um, but it's not out in the open like it was. It, it's not, you know, in the past, every child, every street child we met, if they were on the streets for more than 24 hours, they had either been abused or had at least been approached, but had been able to say no. Every child at one point. And it's just not like that now. So, you know, that's a real improvement. 
But we still, you know, we have teams that go out at night. Every single night they go out in, in twos or threes um, to places where there are street kids and, and they look for, for anyone who might be homeless, build a relationship with them, get them to safety. We have shelters where they can stay um, and then we get them off home, um, you know, try to reunite them with their family, which is usually possible. Um, or, or otherwise we, you know, work out long-term accommodation for them, get them back to school and so on. I guess what, what Blue Dragon is mostly known for is our, is our work of rescues of Vietnamese girls and women who've been trafficked. But, you know, there is this whole other side to our work that, that is very, very important. Um, but, yeah, we, we do these rescues where, where people in China call for help and, and we, we find them and, and bring them home. And it's a similar situation there where, again, once they're out of danger, we then work out what do they need, you know, psychologically. Um, what are they? What shelter do they need? What, what's their educational need? And everyone is different. It's one of the things we really pride ourselves on, that describing Blue Dragon is messy. A lot of programs, you can say, well, what do you do? Well, we teach this thing, and, and it's a six-month course, and then they graduate. Uh, or they come in at this age, and they leave at this age. Well, for Blue Dragon, the experience is different for every single child. We help kids who are out on the street and who don't want to come to our centre. We have kids who live in shelters that we run. We help kids who are in villages up, up, up in the mountains. Um, we, we've got more than 100 young people in university right now. And we've got some kids at the centre who are about 10 years old and have never been to school. So there's this incredible range and diversity. And to me, you know, that's the, it's a microcosm of Vietnam where you've got people in all different positions, all different situations, with all different dreams for their life. And a lot of them are going to make it. Some of them might not. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's at least an exciting day every day at work. You guys do incredible work. Um, we, I would I'd honestly could talk about it for hours with you. Anytime we've met up, I always enjoy hearing your success stories and your challenges. Um, but we, we won't go on too, too much more on this. For anyone listening, please go on the Blue Dragon Facebook page, go on their website, sign up for the mailing list um, because the stories in there are so powerful. Blue Dragon honestly do unbelievable work. Um, so to kind of to, to finish it off, Michael, tell people just kind of how they can support you, why they should support you and what, what's happening next. What's the vision for the future with Blue Dragon? Our, our work really makes a difference. And, and the thing, something that I'm really proud of is that we work at that individual level. You know, we meet a child in crisis and we get them out. And it doesn't matter if they're in China, uh, some of them now are in Myanmar or, or homeless on the street. Um, we will try. We will do our best to, to help them and get them out. And then whatever we learn from that experience, we're, we're then working with the government to improve law. So at the moment, we're working on a revision of the human trafficking law. So, so we're looking at that end-to-end -end impact. And, and I think that's something quite special about us. And, and so people who support us know that they're helping an individual child right now, and they're making the whole system better at the same time. So we're out there, we, we, we always have more to do. Um, 
and and people support us in lots of different ways. We've had, you know, and, and Neil, you've been involved in in lots of events where where people, you know, they're going to have a party anyway. Let's make it for Blue Dragon. Um, but also a, a very powerful way to give is through monthly giving. So we have a program called Dragon Wings, and um, we we invite people to donate any amount that they can. Some people donate five dollars a month. There are some who donate a hundred, and and all of that money is pulled together, and and it's helping these really complex situations of of kids who are struggling to get off the street. Uh, you know the sort of thing that it, traditionally are hard to get funding for, but that's what human life is all about, right? It's messy, and there are kids who need emergency supplies of food, families that need their rent paid sometimes. So that's what Dragon Wings does. And, and, and if there's someone listening and really interested in supporting, I'd suggest having a look at that, going to our website, bluedragon.org, uh, and looking for Dragon Wings, or just shoot us an email or a message through Facebook. Um, it's a really powerful way to help. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't give enough uh, backing to what you do. And we have, we've not even scratched the surface. I don't think of just how amazing the work that you do. So just make sure you go on there and check out those stories on the page. And if it's a tough time for a lot of people right now, but if you can give, then just please give something because uh, it will definitely help. And I'm sure you guys have been affected massively by COVID as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you've mentioned Damien from Saigon Children's Charity. I know that you know, they're out there delivering food and um, every we're all in that same situation where we have our regular work to do. Mm. There are people still calling for help from slavery in, in China and Myanmar. There are still homeless kids, but there are also people going hungry because of COVID. Yeah, it's, um, it, it is a tough time. We, we will get through it, but it's a tough time for now. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, it's good. I like the positivity there. So we're going to finish with the final questions, but after we've talked about something so deep, it feels so frivolous to then finish with these stupid, silly questions, but we're, we're going to do it anyway. So uh, this is not to take away from any of the issues that we've just talked about. Um, these are the final questions of the podcast. So the first one is, have you ever tried durian and what do you think of it? I have tried durian and I don't mind it. It goes well with a little bit of rice wine. And, and it's best if you're away out of smelling distance from where it's being prepared, but try it. <laughs> I keep threatening. I need to put up a picture of uh, the video on my Facebook page for uh, when I tried it for the first and only time and I wasn't a fan. No. <laughs> so my next question is um, just a quick bit of context here in Saigon. I don't know what it's like in Hanoi, but over the last kind of six months to year, the, 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 paintwork on some of these fancy cars is getting more and more ridiculous and my example is that uh, a couple of months ago I saw a bedazzled Mercedes-Benz what's the craziest car you've ever seen well I think it's a car that I once owned myself actually <laughs> a 1977 Mitsubishi Scorpion now I was born in 1974 so uh, I was driving a car that was only a few years younger than me and and it was crazy because it was unbelievable that, that it was actually still held together. <laughs> Genuinely rust color because of the rust and you could hear it two blocks away. Um, and, you know, when, when I bought this car, I was a teacher at the time. One of the teachers took me aside and said, Michael, you can't, you can't 
drive that to school. You're meant to be a professional. <laughs> you, it looks like you bought it at a charity shop. My favorite car ever. <laughs> this was in, in Vietnam. Uh, this was in Sydney. Oh, no, Sydney. I, I'm not brave enough to drive a car here. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't blame you. All right, so what's something that happens in Vietnam that would be looked at strangely in Australia? I think turning up to invite someone to your wedding in three days' time. <laughs> what's going on with that? Just give anyone who doesn't live here or doesn't understand what you're talking about, just give, give a quick explanation of why I'm laughing so hard at that. It happens. It's not like a rarity. Someone sometimes turns up a few days before their wedding and invites you. It's the tradition. I mean, surely you knew that you were going to get married, right? It can't be a surprise to you. But And, and there's this, this complete expectation that you won't have anything on that day. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's often my wedding is at 2 p.m. on Tuesday. Like, you're free then, aren't you? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, they can be it really. It's not like the traditional where we are from where it's like a Saturday afternoon. It's just at some time. because the, But they're not all day affairs generally, right? They're just like you come, you eat, you get a couple of pictures, and then, and then you Which go. Which I love, by the way. <laughs> I remember actually yeah, when Kim and Lewis got married last year. Or was that this year? I don't know. All the years are the same now. I can't even keep track of what day it is. Um, it was like the day before, and she's like, oh, yeah, we've just added another table of 10 people, like my mum's cousin's friends or something. And I was like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, it's fine. I was like, this is, it's... And, and that's, the, that's the great side of it, right? That complete spontaneity. Whatever happens, sure. And I love it because just transplant that, okay? So we're used to that here, and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what happens imagine a wedding in sydney the night before the wedding and you say to the the mum says to the bride hey my cousin wants to bring 10 friends okay you've never met them before because that's what happens you've like my kim had never met these people but she's like they're, they're coming to the wedding imagine that in australia it, it would be an axe murder scenario <laughs> and not a jury would convict it <laughs> <laughs> so let's do the flip then. So what's something that happens in Australia that would be looked at strangely in Vietnam? Well, what about inviting people to your wedding in a year's time? <laughs> right? I, mean, I love it, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, I actually am now so into the Vietnamese culture. I can't tell you what I'm doing this weekend. I don't have any plan at all, more than a day in advance. And, and and this happens, right? I, you know, I'm getting married in a year and I need your RSVP within two weeks. That doesn't make any sense. I never thought about just flipping it exactly in the, the opposite direction. Yeah, imagine that in Vietnam, somebody invited you. We're getting married in Yachang in a year. Can you let me know? What do you want, chicken or fish? You'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> That'd be so, that's a great one. I like that one. And then last one. So obviously you've been in Vietnam for 20 years. And let's say someone's this someone's decided that they're going to come to Vietnam now. What advice would you give them? You, you've got to be patient. And whatever you see on the surface, there's there's far more to it. You know, what, whatever people, if you ask a Vietnamese person, why does this happen? I'll give you an answer. Probably not the actual answer. Um, there's, there's going to be a whole lot more going on. Just rest assured that there's always something else going on. And 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 I think. You know, when, when you're here for a couple of years, in that first couple of years, 
I used to find these periods, I'd reach a point where I think, oh, I really get this place now. I fully understand Vietnam. <laughs> and, and then maybe a month later, I don't understand anything <laughs> about Vietnam. <laughs> so now it's 20 years. I understand a little bit. Yeah. Um, but you, you go through these waves of, of trying to understand everything and thinking that, you, that maybe you've got it. Don't even bother. Don't try. Go with the flow. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so, so much. This was, um, we were scheduled to do this interview in person. Uh, you were going to come down. Just the world has changed so much. You were going to come down to Ho Chi Minh City. You were going to do some Blue Dragon business. We were going to meet together in person. We were going to sit down face to face, have an interview. Then we would have gone for a beer and uh, life would have been good. And instead, um, we're doing it over Zoom. But thank you so much for joining. Uh, I hope things are going okay in Hanoi. Uh, when you do come back to Saigon, which will not be too long, ho hopefully, uh, we'll definitely catch up for that beer. Yeah, yeah, I owe you a beer for sure. I'm sorry we didn't meet in person, but this has been fun. Thanks, Neil. No problem. Cheers, Michael. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Don't forget to subscribe from wherever you're listening from right now. Turn on the notifications as well so you never miss an episode. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you go back through. We've got five seasons of amazing guests that you can listen to their stories as well. Please get in touch. I always love to hear from our listeners. It's one of the best things when I wake up in the morning and I open up Instagram or Facebook and I've had a message from someone telling me that they've been listening from America or Australia or anywhere in the world. So please let me know where you're listening from or Vietnam as well, obviously. Um, I always love to hear from people. I want to give a massive thank you again to our Patreon members, Brandon Thompson and Zion Johnson. If you do enjoy this content, you can support 7 Million Bikes of Vietnam podcast on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. You can become a member of a Vietnam podcast and get access to exclusive member benefits like free tickets to comedy shows or even a free 7 Million Bikes t-shirt as well. So check that out in the show notes, as I said, and you can also buy me a coffee or a beer if you want on coffee.com. So make sure you check that out. So thanks again for listening. Really hope you enjoy season six and you can stay tuned for the future episodes. Cheers. hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. 
I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.